Last Sunday was, uh, was kind of one of the rare days we got home from church, and my wife, she said, I think I'm going to lay down for a nap. She never does that. It's a rare thing, and so in order to try to make the most of that for her, I kept the boys in the living room, and we tried. We tried really, really hard to stay quiet so mom could get a nap, and we failed almost immediately. We just, we were having too much fun. It was loud. She couldn't sleep. She was angry about it, but she just, she couldn't sleep. We were having too much fun. And if you're not aware, I, I have two sons. One is four. His name's Levi. One is about to turn one. His name is Ben. And so Levi, the bigger one, was on my back, and he was riding me like a horse on my hands and knees. And we were chasing little Ben from the living room into the kitchen and back into the living room and laughing and giggling. And it was a lot of fun, but we had to stop because my knees were killing me, guys. Like, they just hurt so bad. And like, I had played on my hands and knees with both my boys for, you know, well, since he was born for four years, and it's never bothered me. But for some reason, this particular time, it just hurt. And as I was rubbing my knees, I kept rehearing these words that my dad had spoken again and again every time we played and his knees hurt or grandpa's knees hurt and all these other men in my life they complain about their knees hurting all the time and I realized this is what they've been talking about I've hit the moment where I've started to get old and I should stop immediately that's the best course of action right just stop age Obviously, that doesn't happen. I'm, I'm 33. I'm not that old. I know that. But I'm starting to get a foretaste of what the future looks like, and I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. Aches and pains. But that's just, that's just what time does, right? We get older, our bodies age, things start to pop and creak and make noises we're not sure they're supposed to make, and, and that's life. You can't stop it. The future is inevitable, partially. You see, there's actually two kinds of futures that we're talking about in that scenario. The first kind of future is the one where it happens to you. It really is outside of your control. You can't stop it. It really is inevitable. Age. You can't stop getting older. You can't stop the clock from ticking. It's going to happen, and it's completely out of your hands. That's the first kind of future. The other kind of future, though, is the one where you happen to it, so to speak, where you actually can shape and form to some extent what that future looks like through your actions and proactive choices today. For example, health. Through diet and exercise and wise choices today, I actually can shape to some extent the kind of health I will enjoy in that inevitable future. So the future is not entirely out of our hands. And it's that second kind of future that we're going to talk about this morning as we wrap up this series called At Our Core. We've been in this series for eight weeks now. We've been talking about the core values of this church, who we are, what we believe, what drives us, those things that make our hearts beat a little bit faster. And today we're concluding by talking about this core value that we call shaping tomorrow. Now, I really wish we had a better term for that, something like a little snappier that gets your attention, but we kicked around so many different terms and phrases, and none of it really captured the idea as well as this. And the idea that we're talking about when we talk about shaping tomorrow is this. We embrace the future, bravely letting go of things that we love in order to reach the people and serve the God that we love even more. We embrace the future, bravely letting go of things we love in order to reach the people and serve the God that we love even more. There is a lot jam-packed into that one value statement. And so we're going to spend our time this morning breaking that down and understanding what that means for us collectively as a church, but also individually in our lives, in our own individual faith walks. And to help us in that process, we're going to be looking at a cautionary tale from the life of King David. 
is found in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry about it. We always put the passages on the screens to the side for you to follow along with. And if you haven't done so already, I would encourage you to download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device. There's a lot of tools on there, announcements, ways to connect with us throughout the week, to stay in the loop about what's going on. There's a Sunday button that's found in the bottom right-hand corner, and there are a lot of tools for engaging and get the, getting the most out of our time together on Sunday morning. The one that's probably most relevant right now is called Sermon Notes. That's where our notes and passages already pulled up, ready for you to engage with. Again, 2 Samuel 15 is where we're going to be. So let's break this value statement down and start understanding what it means to shape tomorrow. It starts off by saying, we embrace the future. And there's a lot of intentionality in those words. What does it mean to embrace something? An embrace, it, it could be an affectionate thing, you know, like you give somebody a hug. Or it could be a comforting thing. You put your arm around somebody who's having a hard day. It could be a, a welcoming thing. You know, guys sometimes will do that one-handed hold and bring it in, pat each other on the back, that sort of thing. That's an embrace. It's always a good, positive thing. If it's negative and you've got your arms around somebody, it's called a grapple also called assault. Both of those are bad. But embraces are always good, positive things. They're not always happy things, mind you. For example, if you've got two siblings that are going at each other's throats, it's not uncommon for mom or dad to make those siblings hug before they go their separate ways. You've got to hug it out, right? Now, that's a good thing. It's a positive thing. It's a needed thing. But it is not a happy thing. Because even as they're hugging, Little Johnny's thinking about how Susie bit him on the arm, and Susie's thinking about how Johnny broke her favorite Barbie doll. They're not happy about this, even if it is good. And all of that applies when we talk about embracing the future. The future could be bright, it could be happy, it could be welcomed, or it could be frustrating, it could be a little dim, it could be hard. Regardless of what adjective we use to describe the quality of the future, there's one word that always applies, and that is inevitable. Whatever else it may be, the future's coming. Sometimes we phrase it like this, it is what it is, it'll be what it'll be. You can't stop it. So you really have two choices when it comes to the inevitable future, no matter whether it's good, happy, sad, whatever. You can dig in your heels you can resist. You can say, I am not going to welcome this future. I am going to cling to the past. I'm going to cling to the present and everything that it represents. But that does nobody any good whatsoever. The other option is to embrace that future, to welcome it, and to try to shape it in some way through choices and actions and so on, to try to form it into something that's a little more palatable, a little more beneficial. Those are the, really the only two choices we have when it comes to tomorrow. Now, all of us know that's not a hard choice to make. There really is only one good option. And if I were to ask any of us in this room individually, which one would you pick? I'm willing to bet 100% of us would pick that second option because it really is the only beneficial choice we can make. We all know this. And yet, at times, it's not unusual to experience hesitancy in choosing that. And that's true at a level if we're talking about a church it's true if we're talking about a business sometimes, or some sort of community organization. Maybe we're talking about a university. Maybe we're talking about us as individuals. It really doesn't matter what entity we're talking about. It's really common to feel that temptation to hang on to the past or to hang on to the present and resist the future because the future is unknown. Sometimes it's scary. 
Sometimes fear causes us to cling to what's comfortable or familiar. Sometimes it's just that comfort or that familiarity itself that is so appealing. Inaction is tempting. But as we're going to see in our passage this morning, inaction always comes at a terrible price. That's the story of of King David in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel. Let me give you a little bit of background here because this is a real days of our lives, Game of Thrones level drama. And there's a lot to understand. So I need you to stay with me as we talk about the different players in this story. It starts off, or it takes place rather... Um, kind of at the later half of King David's life, his children are grown to some extent. And his oldest son, the heir apparent, is a man named Amnon. And Amnon falls in lust, not love, lust, with his sister, his half-sister, Tamar. He just is infatuated with this girl. And I'll spare you the details. Long story short, Amnon forces himself on Tamar and then kicks her to the curb. Which, all of the physical and personal assaults and everything aside, this is a terrible, terrible situation on so many levels. There's all of that obvious stuff. But then socially, there's a lot culturally here that we need to understand. Doing this ruined her entire future. She was a princess. It was her destiny to be married to some prince, to some king, probably in a political arrangement. That was her lot in life. That was her future. That will not happen now. Because no king or prince is going to want to marry a deflowered princess. Her marriage would have secured her uh, a place of of residence. It would have secured her a future. It would have secured her a place to live, food. She would have been safe for the rest of her future. That's not going to happen now. She's not going to marry. She's not going to have any sons through that. When those sons, that was basically your retirement plan as a woman in this ancient culture. Those sons took care of you. She's destitute. She is destitute and destined for poverty the rest of her life. This is an an incredibly heinous thing that Amnon has done to her. And on top of all this, this is his half-sister. It's gross, and everybody knows it. This is a terrible guy. And when King David hears about this, we read about his reactions. He, quote, he was furious. And that's it. He was really angry. But he didn't do anything about it. We don't read of any punishment for Amnon. We don't read of any reconciliation or or consolation for Tamar. He's just really angry. And he fails to act in any way, whether it be legitimate, whether it just be symbolic. He does nothing. And that inaction will come at a terrible, terrible price in the form of his third son, a man named Absalom. See, Absalom was the full blood brother of Tamar. He was the half-brother of Amnon. I told you. Game of Thrones. A lot of, a lot of pieces here. So we have this interaction here. Absalom absolutely adores his sister. He loves her. And he loves her so much that when he understands what has happened to her, he takes her into his home, and he cares for her and provides for her for the rest of her days so that she won't live desolate and in poverty. So he's a, he's a really good brother in that sense. But this love for his sister and what's happened to him, it, it creates this festering hatred for Amnon. And he lets it just grow and eat away at him like a cancer for two years until it can't be sated anymore. And then it comes time to take his revenge. We read about it in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. He comes to David, his father. He says, Dad, I've got some sheep in the fields. I'm going to go shear them with my servants. Why don't you come along? We'll make an afternoon of it. Now, David's the king. He's a really busy guy. He doesn't have time to go shearing sheep. And Absalom knows this. So when David says no, he already has a follow-up question in plan and in store. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 26. Then Absalom said, well, if not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. 
And the king asked him, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him. And so he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. So Amnon, or Absalom says, hey, will you send Amnon with us? If you can't come, send my brother with me. And David knows something's up. This is fishy as heck. Why would you want your brother who did that thing to your sister, why would you want him to come with you to a field outside of the city, away from the palace guard? Why would you want that, Absalom? That sounds like a terrible idea. David is not stupid. He's very suspicious. And yet he sends Amnon anyway. He could have said no. He could have said, Absalom, what are you up to? I don't like this. But he neither says nor does anything. Now, to his credit, he does send the rest of his sons with Amnon, maybe to try to see what's going to happen, maybe to be some sort of protection. It fails. They get out to the field. Absalom gives the signal. A bunch of men jump out. The rest of the king's sons, they run back home. Amnon's dead in a field. Absalom flees in the opposite direction to a neighboring country. If David had done something, anything, even if it was just symbolic, maybe Amnon would have been alive. But instead, his inaction with Tamar and his inaction now with Absalom and his fishy request, it has come at a terrible, terrible price. And I wish I could say that was the whole story, but that's just the background. It's going to get so much worse because inaction and a failure to embrace the inevitable future, it always comes at a terrible price. Through a story we don't have time for this morning, Absalom is allowed to come back home to Israel. And when he gets there, we read about it in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel. He wastes no time. It goes like this. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. So let's pause there because this is a huge big red flag. Here's the deal with chariots and horses. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find very quickly they are never good. Never In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, God told the Israelites explicitly, your king is never to have chariots or gatherings of horses because all of the other idolatrous and godless kings of all the other nations that exalt themselves, that's what they do, and you're going to be different. King Saul never had a chariot with horses. King David, we read, never having a chariot and horses, but Absalom, oh, Absalom's coming into town with his Hummer, He's up on his rims. He's looking good. That's essentially what this was. This was a statement. I have come with royal ambitions. Those men running in front of the chariot, they were heralds. It was their job to let all the people in front of the chariot to know, here comes the king, make way for the king, except Absalom is not a king. He is a prince. He is next in line, but he is not the king. And David did not put his stamp of approval on this. If you read the language carefully, it says Absalom provided himself a chariot and horses and runners. This is a campaign statement. We see this even in our culture today. Like We see soft campaigns. Before anybody even announced candidacy for office, they'll start doing this soft campaign where they might show up on the news a lot more. They might go on a speaking circuit. They might write a book. You're going to hear their name in the media. They're going to show up at important events, and their face is going to get out there. And they're going to start creating this really positive image and creating a household name. It's a soft campaign. That's what Absalom is doing here. The difference between his situation and ours is that they didn't have an election every four years. The only way he becomes king is if David is dethroned or dead. 
And you can maybe start to see where all this is going. And yet David does nothing. Says nothing. He is content to let the future cascade over him and bring what it will. We keep reading. Look at verse 2. There's more to this. So Absalom would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, Hey, what town are you from? And he would answer, Well, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel, and I'm from blah, da 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 And then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land. And then everybody who had a complaint could come to me, and I would make sure that they see that they receive justice. And also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and, and would pick him up, take hold, and kiss him right there on the cheek. And Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so, he stole the hearts of the people in Israel. Every morning, he'd get up, he'd go out to the highway, and he'd stand by the main gate, which were all the people from the surrounding villages and towns would come in. It's like that main traffic light right outside of town. That's where he would stand. And all the people that came in, he'd say, hey, where are you from, buddy? And the guy would come over, and they'd talk and shoot the breeze. Inevitably, they would talk about the court case. People came to, Israel, or they came to, to Jerusalem to plead their court cases to David. He was the king and the judge. And Absalom would listen to it, and whether it was really good and solid or it was just a load of malarkey, he would say to everybody, you know, I think you make a lot of sense. I don't think David's going to see it that way. But if I were king, if I were judge, I'd make sure people like you got what they deserved. I'd uphold justice. He's sowing seeds of discontent and dissension. And all the while, he's making himself look like a hero. He cares about me. He asked about where I'm from. He asked about my family. I tried to bow down to him. He said, no, no. And he picked me up, and he treated me like a friend. He gave me that kiss on the cheek, which if somebody did that today, it'd be really weird. But culturally, it made sense to them. He is the everyman. He's Joe Sixpack. He's somebody I could sit down and have a beer with, you know? He's out kissing babies and shaking hands, and, and he's campaigning openly. And he does this for four years. Four years. He would have spoken to thousands of people in that time. And in those four years, David does nothing. He is inactive, allowing the future to shape his tomorrow. You can't tell me that in four years... Nobody came to him. After thousands of people have heard this, nobody came and said, David, your son's riding around in a limo, passing out campaign buttons, saying, David stinks, vote for me, because we're going to make Israel great again. You can't tell me nobody said anything in four years. He just lets it happen. And we all know, we can probably guess how the story ends. We all see where it's going. Absalom stages a coup. He kicks David out of Jerusalem. He has to flee for his life. Soldiers from opposing armies, both of them Israelite, by the way, clash. Men die. Women become widows. The only reason that this whole ordeal comes to a close is because Absalom is struck down and killed in battle. And you would think that's a good thing, except it's still David's son. Whatever else he was, it was still his boy, his oldest living boy. 
and it crushes him. He is devastated. Personal feelings aside, he also has to sort out all the political mess that this has caused because some people stood by my side and some people were all too quick to betray me and that has to be sorted out. And all the people now question, is David even fit to be king? There is a lack of confidence. There is a lack of allegiance. There is confusion. There is discontent. The kingdom is left in a state of disarray because of this whole thing. And all of it was potentially avoidable. If David had just chosen to act, if he had paid attention to what was developing in his family, if he had paid attention to what was developing in his kingdom, would Amnon be alive? Would Absalom be alive? Would the kingdom be in a a position of power instead of disarray and, and weakness? Would tomorrow be shaped into something a little more beneficial? We will never know. But I'll say this, if he had acted, it couldn't have ended any worse. And there's a strong possibility that something good could have been formed, could have emerged from this. And isn't even a possibility of a better tomorrow worth working for? I think all of us would say, yeah. And that's what we mean when we talk about embracing the future. We do not want to allow inaction to leave us at the mercy of tomorrow to shape what the future looks like. Through proactive choices and action and work today, we want to leave tomorrow at the mercy of us to shape it in some way into something that is beneficial. And that's why we embrace the future, but it good, bad, beautiful, ugly, whatever it is, it is. And we're going to do what we can to make the most of it. So that's the first part of the value statement. We embrace the future. Here's the second part. Bravely letting go of things we love. And brave is a very appropriate word because it takes courage to let go of the things that you love. Do you remember letting go of your childhood toys when you finally had to pack them up or give them away or whatever it was? I remember very clearly, it was kind of this this decisive realization, I'm getting too old for this stuff. So I turned to my wife and I said, it's time to pack this stuff up. It's time to give it away. Now, I was, I was in fifth or sixth grade and I just realized I'm getting old. I'm getting too old for this stuff. And yet I had all these memories and I had like these connections with these toys because I'd played with them for so long. It was hard to say it's time to close that chapter and move on. Sometimes for us, it's a possession, a thing that we've held on to for years. Letting go of something we love is, is challenging. Or it could be a person. Some of us have been in this situation where we have children and they grow up and they get married, and they have their own life, but they're still our kids, and that's still the relationship I want, and yet the relationship that is, is something different, and if I'm going to embrace what is, if I'm going to embrace the future, I have to let go of what was. I have to, I have to change. That's hard. It's hard to let go of something you love. It could be a job or a career. You know, you've been in this job, this career, this, this field for years, And then you retire, and all of a sudden, you're not the one calling shots. You're not the one who's making the choices. Somebody else is, and you have to watch and let them fail, succeed, carve their own path. That's a hard thing to let go of that job, that responsibility. Or maybe it's an activity, something we love to do, but we just can't anymore, either because of of, of physical reasons or because of time, scheduling. We just don't have time to do it. It's hard to let go of things that we love. A good example of this is the body. 
We talked about this. Remember, my knees hurt. The body ages. There are things we can't do as we age, at least responsibly. But that's hard to let go of. And so sometimes we try to do them anyway, and it doesn't always end well. I heard a joke. You've probably heard it before. You know what the leading cause of injury in older men is? It's believing they're younger men. And that's true. Fellas, and I've got some young guys. Maybe you don't know this yet. You will. I'm starting to experience it. Do you get this thing where it's like, okay, I love to do this thing. I want to do it. I want to play with my boys. I want to be the horse and, and have my four-year-old ride me and, you know, all that stuff. But it's not always a good idea. How many times have we, we hurt our back, tweaked our, our knee or pulled a shoulder or something, trying to do something we did when we were 20 or do it the way that we were 20, you know? Like, not accepting that reality that we've gotten older, we can't do all these things, it can lead to injury. The body ages, that's reality. You have to let go of some things that we love in order to embrace the truth. What do you think of a, a building? You know, buildings built, I, I like old buildings. Sometimes they're frustrating to work on, but I do like old buildings. Churches are a great example of this. Some of the churches in this country are, are hundreds of years old. I read about a church, it's up in Maryland. It was built in 16-something like, this, this building is 400 years old, and yet people have met in it continuously that entire time. Why do people continue to meet in old buildings like that? Well, it's because they've updated. They've embraced changes in things like indoor plumbing or electricity or indoor uh, heat and air. I remember a church I previously served in, uh, the building was 150 years old. It's an old building. And people had fond memories of that building, but it was built before, like, central heat and air was a thing. And so in the wintertime, they would tell these stories of back in the 40s and the 50s. They had this wood-burning stove at the front of the sanctuary. And they, all the people, they'd just come and they'd huddle around this wood-burning stove. It's the only time anybody ever fought to sit in the front row at church. But, like, they would sit there, and just that's how they stayed warm. They used to talk about it and laugh. It sounded miserable. Now, they loved this building. They had fond memories of every nook and cranny in that place. But do you think they held on to that wood-burning stove? Or do you think at the first opportunity, they installed central heat? Yeah, they put the heater in because it gets cold. And because they realize we have to update our facilities, we have to embrace some of these future changes, they continue to meet. That church from the 1600s continues to meet because people embrace the future. They embrace inevitable reality. And both of these things apply when we talk about church congregations as well. Biblically, we are called a body, or the body of Christ. Biblically, we are a temple. We are the temple in which the Spirit of God dwells, is what we're called. And metaphorically, we are these things. Now, literally, if they change, if they have to adapt, if they have to embrace the future in order to continue surviving, it makes sense that we, as a metaphorical extension, we would have to do the same. If we want to really be the body, if we want to really be the temple, the building where, where people gather and where the Spirit of God is found, then we also have to embrace the future, the inevitable changes that come. Because digging in our heels doesn't do any good. Sometimes it's hard to let go of things that we love. That might mean programs, ministries, partnerships, methodologies, styles. There's all kinds of things that we love, we have fond memories of. But if we really are going to embrace the future... Sometimes we have to let go of the things we love. That gets a little easier, though, when we remember why we're letting go. And that's the last part of this value statement. We embrace the future, bravely letting go of things we love in order to reach the people and serve the God that we love even more. We really don't value change for the sake of change. We really don't value changing just to get with the times. 
What we really value as FCC Monmouth is the life that God has created for us and the people that he has filled it with. That's what we really, really value. And we want to honor those things. We want to honor this God. We want to honor those people by being faithful to this unchanging message that he's giving us to, to share and to stand for and to promote and to represent. Now, you, you and I, we've talked about how things change. The future is uncertain. The world changes at, at a blistery fast pace. This year has been a great example of it. There's so many different movements and ideas and happenings and changes that are happening right now all around us on so many different fronts. It feels like sometimes you're just trying to keep your head above water at times. Let alone find hope, encouragement, and peace. There are people in this world that struggle to find these things. And yet we in this room, we have this message of hope and peace and assurance in very uncertain times. It's called the gospel. It's this message about an unchanging God whose faithfulness never wavers. Despite what happens in this world and in future and in history, whatever tomorrow may bring, God's promises will always stay consistent. It's this promise that in Christ, your sins are erased. How refreshing is that in a world that is all too quick to bring up the past sins of everybody and every organization ever? Your sins, are really gone. It's this unchanging promise that, that there is evil and injustice in this world that will not be allowed to persist forever. Right now, we see a lot of arguments and debates and movements about fighting injustice and inequality and so on, and sometimes it feels like we're not really gaining any traction, and yet we have this promise that all of these evils that we all recognize and want to see rectified will be rectified. It is certain it will happen. It's this message that your life your tomorrow is promised. Your life doesn't end at a grave. It persists and it continues on and on and on. And we have all these promises from this unchanging God that are verified in the person of Jesus who died on a cross, who was buried in the ground, and yet because of the promises of God, the impossible happened. He was raised back to life, never to die again. There's a lot of credibility and a lot of reason to believe that that actually historically happened. And that's where we stand. We stand on this gospel, this good news, that there is an unchanging God in an ever-changing world with unchanging promises that fulfill us, that bring peace and hope and contentment, that bring this assurance that we all desperately need in this world. And people need to know that. That's a message worth articulating again and again in every generation. And if that means we have to change some things to articulate that hope, if we have to let go of a, a ministry, a methodology, a style, a decor, a building, if we have to go back to the basics and rewrite the whole playbook so that people today understand who this God is and what he's done, that's what we have to do. Because more than any of these things that we love, we love this God and we love these people. That's what we believe at our core. And that's why we embrace the future. Bravely letting go of things, even things that we love, so that we can better reach the people and serve the God that we love even more than any of this. We don't want to repeat the mistakes of David and allow inactivity to put us at a disadvantage for ministry. We don't want to allow inaction to write our tomorrow. We want to take the wheel. We want to chart the course. We want to shape what our future looks like, whether it be good, bad, ugly, beautiful, or something in between. We want to be there because people are always going to need to hear the good news of Jesus. And that's why we work so hard to keep our eye on the ball and shape tomorrow.
Now, you may be hearing this and you're saying, okay, as a church, I get it. We're church. We're going to change. Blah, blah, blah. What do I do individually? How does this apply to me? I would encourage you to take control of your personal faith future and shape what your tomorrow looks like. Spiritual growth does not happen by accident. It never has. It never will. But through proactive choices, by making a decision to take a step and to say, I'm going to grow. I'm going to find out who this guy Jesus really is. I'm going to check out the credibility of this resurrection story I just heard about. I'm going to join a small group or a class. I'm actually going to grow. I'm going to read the Bible and actually understand what it says. I'm going to understand who God is and what he really wants for my life and what my purpose is. Those are questions that won't just magically fall in our laps. And if we are inactive, the future will cascade over us and paint a not too pretty picture. But if we are active, and we choose to shape our own personal faith futures, if we shape tomorrow for ourselves, there will be the possibility of something great and grand. And you will find a richer faith. You will find a deeper hope. And you will find a more peaceful assurance to build your life upon. I promise you that. So let's together, as a church, as individuals, let's grasp reality and let's work to shape what tomorrow looks like. You may be wondering, Okay, we heard a message about change. Oh no, what are we changing? We're not changing anything. Don't worry about it. I'm going to put your mind at ease. I just want us to be aware that there will come a time when change has to happen. And we want our hearts and our minds ready to embrace that moment and to capitalize on it. Because this God and those people are worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the future. We don't know what it holds. We don't know what it holds for our community, for our individual lives. We don't know what it holds for our country. But Father, we do know what the ultimate reality of the future will be. Because you told us. You win. You reign. Sin is obliterated. Death is erased. Evil is extinguished. Satan is abolished. And your people gather with you face to face forever. We know that that's the future we're heading towards. What lies between now and then, we don't know, but we pray that you prepare our hearts and our minds and our faith to stand the test, to be ready, to share this good news of hope and love and assurance in the gospel. We pray that you would use this church and to use our individual lives to build something precious, a billboard of your greatness, a, a sign that points to your worth, that, Father, we would be instrumental this year, next year, 10 years, 100 years from now, however long it takes, but that we would be here in the future to tell the people of tomorrow your eternal and unchanging goodness. Let us shape that kind of future through our action today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.